When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome to Tuesday's edition of the Football Social Daily Premier League podcast. The weekend may be over, but the football chat certainly is not. On today's show, we're going to be looking back at last night's Premier League action as Aston Villa beat 10-man Sheffield United 1-0 at Villa Park and Manchester City finally got their campaign underway with a 3-1 win away at Wolves. My name's Fergal Brennan and I'm joined on today's show by the gaffer, Jim Salverson. Jim, how are we? You're right, Fergal. I'm good, Tom, mate. And we are joined by the Faffer, the Gaffer and the Faffer, Marley Anderson. Marley, how are we? The fa- what's that? What's that introduction, Fergal? <laughs> Come on, man. I was trying to think of something that rhymes with Gaffer. Oh, uh, well, you, well, all right, I'll stick with that. But I, I would have gone with something <laughs> to uh, to reflect my horrendous betting nature after backing Wolves last night and being like, Wolves are 6-1 to one to beat Man City last night, everyone. Like, that's good value. And then watching them get absolutely spanked 3-1. So, yeah, will, may, maybe the worst gaffer of the... Uh, of Betting uh, in betting history is my my little moniker. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If by the end of the show you can yeah, you beat... me a fiver, Marley. <laughs> <laughs> if you can beat Faffer before the end of the podcast, I'll eat my words, OK? That, uh, that fair deal? Without swearing or with swearing? <laughs> well, with the with the gaffer on, I'll let him be the judge of that. Right, enough, ga- <laughs> enough gaffer, enough Faffer. Um, brilliant night of Monday football. Uh, and in part one, we're going to be taking a detailed look at that win for City away at Wolves. In part two, it's more VAR chat. Yes, apologies, as that was the big takeaway from Villa's win at home to Blades. And in part three, Jim will be continuing our floodlight focus as he speaks to Everton fan Michael from the Unholy Trinity podcast. So make sure you keep listening for that. However, before we get into the games, there's some breaking news reaching us this morning on fans returning to stadiums. Now, obviously this has been been something that's dominated the news and conversations between fans and journalists and and everyone else in between of when supporters will be allowed to go back into stadiums. Jim, as it stands, it it doesn't look very positive because according to Michael Gove, Cabinet Minister this morning, this initial plan to have supporters back by October the 1st isn't going to happen. What's your take on this? I mean, we've said all along, it's got to be safety first with this kind of thing and that rarely seems to be top of the decision-making tree when we're talking about fans going back to football. And there is a serious situation with football clubs needing fans in the stadiums. And I'm not necessarily talking about Premier League clubs here. They're probably going to do all right. They've got games on TV. They're going to keep the TV money, the sponsorship deals coming in. I'm talking about the lower league clubs that uh, rely on gate receipts to keep their tills ticking over. So there is a consideration there, but the top of the list has to be people's health and people's safety and we saw the terrifying if you're in britain listening to this podcast you know that watch the terrifying press conference yesterday given by the government's health advisors which basically showed all kinds of scary graphs that are on the up and rising our rates in terms of coronavirus infection and all that kind of thing and you just go you can't with good conscience put 
two, three thousand people into a football stadium at the moment in close proximity where they're going to be passing each other in corridors and standing next to each other on toilets because it just simply isn't safe. So it feels to me like it's the right choice. I think the question is how we now stop football clubs who do need these gate receipts, who do need this money coming in, how we stop them from going under. And I don't know what the answer is in that scenario. Marley, ultimately, as Jim said, the focus of attention is going to come on sides that are not in the Premier League because, as we know, Premier League football generates an enormous amount of income and you know one of the big stats that was rolled around over the summer is that the bulk of their funding comes from television rights and sponsorships, etc. What realistically can be put in place as a plan to get Championship, League 1, League 2 football back on track? Oh, bloody hell, if I knew that answer, I'd be working in the government. For the <laughs> um, but I, I don't know, to be honest. It, it looks like, you know, everyone's got to deal with the situation that, that we're in. Um, the the government advice has not been good so far, and now we're, we're facing a, a second spike because of that, I would think. Um, you know, if, if you listen to this podcast uh, abroad... Um, Basically, in June and July, the government were urging everybody to get out and rebuild the economy. And in, you know, mid, what we're now mid-September, they're like, sorry, lads, um, everyone's causing a second virus by going out and mixing. So it's kind of like, it's it's a bit like, you know, you've, you've led us so wrong this time, like in the past, that what, you, we've got no confidence in them coming up with a solution to to number one get the economy back on track but when you look at the economy and then you look at football I mean football's such a a small thing for for the government like they don't really care about getting fans back in in games um it's the the EFL and the Premier League that are trying to do that and unfortunately the the lower teams in the in the lower part of the pyramid are going to be the ones most affected because they're the one the ones living practically paycheck to paycheck because they need the gate receipts 10 times more than, than Man United or Tottenham or someone like that. So when you take fans out of that situation and you can't have them back for a foreseeable um, period in the future, then it looks like more are going to go bust. And as we know from the past few months, uh, a few have gone bust. And you could argue what do the governing bodies do to try and help them? Um probably in this situation there's there's probably not that much they can do but in previous um in previous months you've seen you know Macclesfield get in trouble you've seen Bolton and Wigan and Berry go out of go out, go out of um, business practically so well definitely in the case of Berry they've gone and they're dead and buried so it's one of them where you you look to the the governing bodies but in this situation it's it's got to probably more come from the government and you've got to say Unfortunately, if we do go into full lockdown again and we don't have fans back in the stadium, even at, even at limited capacity, then we are going to see more um, clubs go bust and clubs go sort of living on the on the breadline kind of thing because they can't sustain it because they're such high they've got such high sort of cash day to day running costs that. It's almost impossible to keep it going when you've got no income coming in through the fans and the merchandise being bought and everything like that. I mean, yeah. that's the problem that Marley highlights there is that we have a lot of clubs with high running costs. And this isn't a COVID problem. This isn't a coronavirus problem. This is a football problem that's just been accelerated by coronavirus and stadiums being closed and whatever. Essentially, we have a football system in Britain that has too many professional football clubs and it's not sustainable. So how we maintain that in the long term, I don't know. And the whole COVID crisis, it might see us reduce the amount of professional leagues we have in this country. And long term, that it's a painful thing to say and it'll be a painful process to go through. But long term, that might be a good solution because I don't really know how the volume of lower league clubs we have can continue to support themselves in the current situation without either a salary cap potentially or maybe some kind of trickle down from the Premier League in terms of finances. And essentially, why should Premier League clubs... Premier League clubs are businesses. Why should they support other businesses that could potentially be competition? That It just doesn't make any sense. So there, there needs to be some kind of adjustment, some kind of address to how football, professional football runs 
in the, the UK and it's, it's not going to be something that's resolved by opening football stadiums early and putting fans at risk. Although, I have to say, I was walking past my local football club this weekend just gone, a team called West Didsbury and Chalton FC, and as I was walking past, a goal score, got scored and the crowd just cheered. And it's only small crowds, it's kind of 600 people, tops, something like that. And it felt really nice to hear a real-life crowd in a football ground again. But It's just nice to see a goal, isn't it, Jim, when you're a West Ham fan? <laughs> <laughs> Don't remember what they're like. Uh, yeah, but it's just something that has to be put on the back burner again for the time being. Well, I think that... Go come... on, Marley. Sorry. I was going to say, do you know one um, one thing I've just thought of then when we were talking about you know how to sort of safeguard things? Um, one potential thing you could look at, and it only really applies to Premier League, but you could probably get it down to the Championship and League One if you if you uh, if you tried hard enough. I'm thinking like with obviously fans not coming back, the. <laughs> The one way to sort of offset that loss of money and that loss of ticket revenue is if clubs didn't have, hadn't been sort of um, controlled by the TV companies. Basically, like, you know, every Premier League club has to, the, the massive part of their, their income is TV rights and the massive deal with Sky and everyone benefits from it and it's all great, fine. But if you look at like the championship, not every championship uh, fixture is on TV. There's a lot of three o'clock kickoffs and things like that. Could they not do something where they they say, um, well, the thing is they can't do this, but could they do it in future? Things like um, we're gonna show your own club's fixtures. So, for example. Brentford might say, well, we're, we, we're not on TV every week, but we can film and stream the uh, game on our website. For um, It's a tenner per fan. And if you get 5,000 fans watching that on a stream and they've all paid a, you know, a tenner each, then there's 50 grand and you didn't have that before because you can't have people coming through the gates. Is there not something you can do like that where you say, well, we can't wait around for TV money uh, to come in because that's affected because of fans and and everything like that and is it not better if we all just fend for ourselves that way and look after our own fans um and and things like that you know what i mean like if you if don't you they, don't they got the opportunity in the afl in terms of you can buy a like a, a yeah, the, 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 AFL play, the, I, the i follow thing yeah i don't i don't know how that works i don't know if it works for games that just aren't on at a certain time like the three o'clock well, you, Saturday games or something like that, but yeah, I'm not really. You, you I'm not really sure. You can't show three o'clock Saturday games, can you? Still, it's still one of the set the ring fenced, safeguarded. Yeah, matches. Well, you can you can in the Premier League now, can't you? Because they are they still have they scrapped that? I thought they'd scrapped that rule this year. Because I don't of only, the, te- the only, temporarily. only temporarily. Yeah. Well, so they. I mean, there you go. Like, can you not say, well, yeah? I mean, we can't show this um, on TV, but you can show, you know, Blackburn fans the Blackburn game yeah. do you know what I mean like can can they not work together to to try and save clubs I mean the TV companies are probably most at fault for everything here because they're the greedy gits and they've paid a lot of money for to show a lot of games um, but is there not a better solution I don't know when it just stings a bit when there are clubs going out of out of business and you are looking around and thinking you know it wouldn't have took much money to save them and mm. you know everyone sat there with with loads of money in the in the sort of bank kind of thing at other clubs because they've they've got bigger pots and they can they can fall back on a little bit of a cash cushion. But I don't know. Maybe I've, there is. I think there are steps that can be made to to safeguard things. I just don't think they're they're ever really going to get made because I don't really think anybody outside clubs that are affected care about other clubs. As, as Jim said, everyone fends for themselves and. That's kind of fair enough in a, in a way, but also when it's it is harsh when it's through no fault of their own that yeah. that clubs are going out of business. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this story as it evolves. Obviously, currently no fans allowed into stadiums 
I would say it's probably going to stay that way until the end of 2020 and, and probably be looked at after Christmas. But it's going to be a situation that's going to keep causing debate between fans because, as you say, it, it just opens up that gulf between the Premier League and, and the rest of the Football League pyramid. In Premier League action last night, Manchester City finally got their campaign up and running. It seemed like forever uh, since we've seen Pep Guardiola's side in action. 3-1 win away at Wolves. Very impressive, Jim. Strong start to the season exactly what Guardiola would have wanted. He would have been watching the Liverpool games, seeing how impressive they are. He knows they can't afford anything other than a very, very strong start. And I thought they got exactly that. When Marley yesterday was predicting a slow start for Manchester City and a potential Wolves win, despite the odds being 7-1, to one, as he said earlier, <laughs> I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I am with you, Marley. But, God, lo- I mean, God loves an optimist. We all forgot that's what, about Kevin De Bruyne, didn't we? <laughs> that's what <laughs> annoys me, doesn't it? I mean, everything I said yesterday made sense. No Laporte, no Gundogan, no Aguero. First we're, game of the season, Wolves were great in the opening day, 3-1 City. Cheers, we were, lads. We were all shocked by you making sense, to be fair. <laughs> I shocked myself and I'm also 20 quid down because of it so I'm not not the most happy this morning I mean it was Kevin De Bruyne wasn't it in the first half that was the driving force for Manchester City <clears throat> yet again I mean he just looked dangerous so much through that first half and everything good about City was going through him. I think that's where the worry is. We talked about the impact of Aguero being injured on yesterday's podcast and whether City were going to find those goals. As long as they got KDB, then I don't think there's too much of an issue there because he just lays them on a plate for other people in that Manchester City team. You can almost hear every time he gets tackled or every time he gets a knock and goes down holding something, a collective intake of breath from the Manchester City fans at the moment because he is that important but I think it was a game of two halves yesterday for me from a Manchester City point of view first half they were unplayable everything was right they looked like the Manchester City we know at their best second half it ebbed away slightly and a few weaknesses were here and there particularly I thought that left-hand side with Mendy on it looked really weak and Wolves targeted him again and again and again. I thought Stones again looked unconvincing at the back with Ake, who had an excellent debut. But you can kind of see why potentially there are some question marks around Manchester City's defence still and Guardiola is looking to strengthen in that area in the transfer market. But all in all, you'd think Manchester City fans are very happy with the opening game of the season. Marley, as Jim said, it's an impressive performance and, and exactly what Guardiola would have wanted. Three goals, three points in the bag. But we do seem to be in this situation where there's more questions than answers. John Stones is obviously someone that's going to come into focus. Adam Keyworth, who's a regular on the podcast, tweeted before the game saying, this is John Stones' last chance, isn't it? Let's be fair. And, and I think in a way, with the transfer window almost shut, it probably is. We are still looking at certain areas of that City team and saying... Are they ready for a long, hard season? Aguero's out until November. There's going to be a lot of reliance on Gabriel Jesus to fill in. Eimerick Laporte is probably a couple of weeks away from coming back. And and as Jim pointed out, you've got an injury-prone Benjamin Mendy who doesn't quite seem at the races at the moment. Yeah, I think... um... I think Stones is is probably in last chance saloon. Um, I think if it if it had been a normal summer and and not sort of condensed and and the uh, window had been shut before the season started, I think you could have seen Stones perhaps leaving, maybe on loan for a year or something, just go somewhere. But obviously, City getting charged a billion pounds for every centre back in the world is is not helping them <laughs> at the minute because they can't get who they want, so they can't. They can't get rid of people before they get people in. Um, I think Ake's, Ake's fine. Um, good player. Got his best years ahead of him. Stones has had... He's just been burnt, hasn't he, a lot. He's, he's had chances. He's made, he's made mistakes. Um, but he looked OK last night, I think. Um, thinking about it, I think Wolves play... Play the, a way that suits Stones. As in, they're not overly physical. Like, they're not sort of putting everything in the air um, towards Stones and Jimenez because Jimenez would, would win that battle. They tend to play, you know, um, attack from the wings a little bit more and the likes of Pedence and, and Treore are a little bit um, more suited to how Stones defends. He, you know, he, he's quick across the ground. He's got a good touch. He's, he, he can pass it round them. He's, he's quite happy to, to bring it out of defence a little bit more and, and Wolves are sort of giving them that little bit of space to to play a little bit. But So 
it's it's one of them. It's, you know, it's a good start for for Stones. Um, I can't see him getting many games when everyone's fit. Um, but I still think there's a good defender in there. But the only the thing is with Stones, you have to you have to have a run of games to get your confidence back. And if you're coming in once every six games and playing, you are you are more prone to mistakes because you haven't got that partnership um, and relationship with your centre back partner. Um, and when there's another one coming in, by all all accounts, you know Kounde or Koulibaly or whoever it is, you're going to look at the centre backs and go Laporte's number one choice, the new lads number two choice, Ake's number three probably, and then and then it's Stones. So you're going to look at his game time and think, is this going to get better? Are you going to get back in the England squad with with that kind of um, those kind of minutes coming your way? And I'm not really sure uh, it's the best place for him at the minute, but. As I said, there's still a good defender in there, but it's just he needs to he needs to start proving it because he's he's not the youngest anymore. It's time, it's that kind of like sort of period in his career where he needs to really mature and and sort of you know come good as a as a fifty million pound centre back like he was uh, a few years ago. It feels like he needs to run, doesn't it, and to get that confidence back a little bit. And I don't think it's necessarily not going to happen this season at City because there's a few City fans, and I have to to say I don't particularly understand this argument, but they're suggesting that if you have Laporte and Ake as your two centre-backs, that's not how Guardiola will set up because they're both left-footed players and Guardiola likes a left and a right-footed centre-back. And I don't really understand that because I think if you're a professional footballer, you can probably use both feet. It's a lot of balls, isn't it, that? (laughs) Let's be honest. Let's call a spade a spade, Jim. That is a load of balls, isn't it? Two left-footed centre-backs can't play each other. How many many teams have ever had two left-footed centre-backs in the entirety of the Premier League? There aren't that many left-footed centre-backs. So who knows how they play with each other? I agree. I think it seems like rubbish, but it seems to be quite a common-held belief and something that's repeated as well. And whether it's to do with the way Guardiola likes his centre-backs to distribute the ball, I don't know. So if that is the case, and if Laporte and Ake aren't going to set up together which I'd imagine they would then that opens the door gives an opportunity for John Stones to become the the second centre-back doesn't it so if he can get that run and he can build that confidence I think that as you say there is still a, a good defender in there he just needs that he needs a few, he needs games simple as that uh, Marley, another player who needs games and is going to get games is Gabriel Jesus. Obviously, Jim touched on before, Aguero outside line probably for at least another two months. That's a big gap to fill. Now, City fans that I speak to love to tell me, you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand what he does, look at his record. And I'm looking at his record right now and... I would be worried if I was a City fan. Five goals at the back end of last season when he replaced Aguero before he went in for surgery. Three of them came in 5 nil wins. Sorry to remind you, one of them being against Newcastle. The others <clears> against <throat> Brighton and Norwich who were already relegated. This is not exactly title challenge number nine form, is it? No, um, I think... I'm one of them people who thinks, you know, stats can be interpreted in, in a lot of ways, um, especially with strikers. I mean, you remember when Kalechi Iheanacho was at Man City and he had a ridiculous scoring rate um, and it was it was tap-ins at the end of 6-1 wins and stuff like that. It was a similar sort of thing. It, was, it wasn't leading the line, number one striker, breaking the deadlock against a tough team kind of thing like Aguero does you would there would never be in a, a um a game where you would think Aguero's not going to score in this game but Jesus needs that uh he needs that prolific sort of streak I don't think teams fear him as much as they do someone like Aguero even though he has the talent um and I think he's he's an incredible player he's going to be he's got time on his side for for his age he could be an absolutely lethal striker if he carries on doing what he's doing but at the minute He's not quite at Aguero's level, and that's always gonna, it's always gonna happen because Aguero set the standards so high at Man City over the last eight or nine years that it's practically impossible to step into his shoes when, um, when you you get the chance. So he did all right last night. I think you know he does. He his running and his movement is excellent, and it fits it fits Man City's style well, especially when they score so many goals from the wings. You know, your centre forward needs to create uh, space for the for the two wingers, Sterling and uh, and Foden. Last night, 
his cutback for uh, for Foden's goal was was great. I think, you know, a, a greedier striker might have tried to sneak that in at the near post. But with City, you always know when they when they get it out wide, they're going to cut it back and have a tap in because they score at least, you know, one goal a game from some something similar to that. So, I think he brings more to the team than just goals. Um, but again, it's just it's just having that consistency and and that kind of thing. He probably needs a, a run of games. So over the next two months, he he might bang in. You know, ten goals and get another four assists. So I mean, it's it's not beyond his his capabilities. So I don't think it's a case of Jesus isn't good enough. You need someone else. I think it's maybe a case of do you need someone else? As as we said on yesterday's podcast, you need a, a third option in case Jesus doesn't work and Aguero's injured. Do you need a third man who can come in and and uh, and provide something a little bit different? I've just been listening to that, Marley, and imagining the headlines on Christian newspapers, Jesus doesn't work, Jesus isn't good enough. I think you could find yourself a neat sideline writing headlines for, for Christian newspapers. Um, Jim, the other focus for City is obviously going to be Phil Foden. Um, I'm a firm believer in the worst thing you can do with a promising young player is compare them to a brilliant former player. City is slightly in danger of doing that with Foden and, and Gabriel he- um, and David Silva, sorry. Given the situation at City, Foden's going to play a lot of football this season. Nine Premier League starts last season as Guardiola started to feel him into the first team. Is he ready for 30-plus Premier League games and, and a leading role in that midfield alongside De Bruyne? If you judge it on last night, he is, and this is his time. I, I don't think he even made nine stats last season, did he? I thought it was more like four or five, but... Yeah, I mean, he proved himself last night and he's proved himself since Project Restart took over that he can play regularly in that Manchester City midfield and can contribute. He's not ready to step into David Silva's books, uh, boots. That's just not going to happen. You can't put that kind of pressure and that kind of expectation on a young player playing his first full season in the Premier League. But I thought he did well last night and I think he'll be a regular for Manchester City and will contribute this season. He did well cutting in from wide positions. His positioning was great for the goal, which was a classic Manchester City goal. It's what they've become known for. And he even fulfilled that lone striker role for a little bit. He interchanged with Jesus, which I thought was interesting, maybe an indication of where Pep Guardiola's head is at if Jesus isn't working or if Jesus does get injured at some point because he kind of was leading the line for a while. That didn't really work quite so well I think he's a little bit lightweight to do that but it was interesting to see him playing there but yeah I I think I mean we've talked for a long time that Phil Foden should be getting more game opportunity and should be getting more starts we've seen him now get starts for England we've seen him appear regularly for Manchester City like I say since Project Restart and there's nothing that he's done that's said to me he isn't ready so I look forward to watching him this season I think he has potentially got the chance to be the person who is classed as England's great white hope. He could be the, uh, the the best young player in the Premier League this year. Potentially, that's a big shout. Um, Marley, Wolves can't be too disappointed with this result. They're playing against Manchester City. Yeah, we're still in the early stages of the season, but given the way they reacted, particularly second half, and they were possibly unlucky maybe not to get a draw, what did you make of them? Uh, and what have you made of them in the first two games of the season? I think I was impressed against Sheffield United. I think they they blew them away pretty quickly and didn't give Sheffield uh, a chance to to get in the game. The game was practically over before Sheffield United, you know, got warmed up sort of thing. So they were excellent there. Um, I think they did all right against Man City. I think. You know, City got the penalty. It was a really poor challenge. You could see it coming a mile off when when the guy uh, the defender slid in. Size. Um, you could see what De Bruyne was doing. Um, you could see he was going to get there first. It was one of them where you you just got to let him have the ball. So that was a poor decision. Um, that one was, you know, you can avoid that. The second one was a little bit, you know, you sort of Man City can do that to any team. They can open you up like like they did for uh, for Foden's goal. Um, but the second half they were they were a lot brighter. Um, I think last year. You know, I've seen a few City fans online saying last year we'd have uh, we'd have blew that, we'd have drew two two or allowed, you know, Wolves a, a, a result out of that. But they they sort of held on to it a little bit more more wiser, used their used their uh, their knowledge to just sort of see them through the game and nick a third. So I think 
Wolves, you know, you can't expect to go and beat Man City every every uh, every year. They did twice last season, so again, it was kind of a thing where you know Wolves are good enough to beat Man City, but you have to be good enough on the day and it, everything has to go your way. You have to have a little bit of luck. You have to have them not quite having the best game kind of thing or being a little bit tired from previous games or not quite being up to speed. So I don't think Wolves will be like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're way off where we need to be because... You know, they, they still scored, they still caused problems at times. Um, again, you know, if you take that size penalty out, you know, they get the equaliser at 1-1 and then it's game on. Anything could have happened and, you know, they wouldn't have been chasing the game as hard as they were as uh, towards the end and they probably wouldn't have conceded that third goal. So there's still positives to be taken. You can't, you can't overreact to uh, a, a result so early in the season and when everything's not quite settled down. So... As well, they haven't even got the full squad. They're still doing business in the transfer window, so there's always things that are going to happen to uh, to change what could have uh, what things could have been last night. Jim, plenty of positives sorry. weren't there. I mean, like the likes of I mean Daniel Podence, he's some player. Looked really dangerous right the way through the game. He had all Wolves' big chances. That Megs on KDB at the towards the end for the Wolves goal was absolutely beautiful. So I don't know who does Wolves scouting, but if you were Manchester United, you just go and buy the lot of them. Just go pick up the scouting <laughs> team, bring them to Manchester and go, do for us what you did for them. Because they just seem to be able to turn up these little gems from Portugal. I don't, I don't know who it is, but window. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'll be called Zhao or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, this this is going to be the focus for them this season. Obviously, Jota moving to Liverpool, Doty moving to Tottenham. Jim, are they able to just produce another Portuguese talent from the basement or wherever Mendes and Santo has them locked away? Have they got a big enough squad? Do they, do they need maybe one or two more new heads? Do they need some sort of magic working again? They don't need extra reinforcements because they've still got a strong squad Jota was a big bit part player for Wolves in previous seasons he wasn't a regular starter so I don't think he's a big miss Doherty I think is a player they could potentially look to replace because it would appear that they're sticking Adama Traore into the wing back position and kind of making him fill in there and I don't think that plays to his strengths I mean he's a big lad he's not someone you're going to want to get into a physical battle with so he certainly works in that position but I think it's maybe wasting his talent slightly because we saw glimpses of him when he did get forward against Manchester City he was causing problems so I don't think it's a case of necessarily needing to go into the transfer market but I think if they do want to improve on last season they do need to fill in particularly that sort of full-back position, uh, maybe one or two others, but they've got a decent team there and the players that they have signed in the window uh, showing flashes of what they can produce as well. So if I was a Wolves fan, plenty of positives from last night and they've got, my, and they've got West Ham next. So that's going to get the season back on track. <laughs> OK, brilliant stuff. Uh, on an ever-positive note from Jim, we're going to call it there for part one. After the break, we're going to be discussing Aston Villa's win over 10-man Sheffield United and, yep, more VAR chat. Catch you in a minute. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Social Daily Premier League podcast. Just a quick reminder, we're back up to seven days a week, so that means every single day you can get all the latest football gossip, transfer news, match previews, match reports, the whole lot. We'll be giving plenty of opinion on all things going on in the English top flight. You can also catch up on your own team. If you have an Amazon smart speaker, simply ask Alexa to enable Sports Social, pick your team and away you go. Now, guys, Marley, Jim, VAR, we're talking about it. Again, early red card in the Aston Villa-Sheffield United game last night. John Egan sent off for, for me, what was a fairly controversial decision. I'm going to stick my head out and say I don't think it was a red card. I don't even really think it was a foul. Am I just edging away from the VAR crowd or do you think there's something in this? Marley, we'll go to you first on this. It definitely, the one thing I would say, whether you think it's a foul or not, it's definitely not clear and obvious. It's definitely to be a, not. To be a red card. Yeah, um, yep. there's. I mean, the fact that we're debating it now, and and the fact that it took about 25 minutes last night in the in the decision <laughs> from VAR to get it was um, was a clue that it's not quite, uh, you know, um, 
clear and obvious. I mean, if you compare it to the Chelsea-Liverpool um, game at the weekend, Christensen literally rugby tackled Mane. Um, and you can't, you can say, right, that's clearly a red card because he took him down and it's not natural. I think with, with Watkins and Egan, you can't see a battle, a straight race between two players at any point on the pitch at all without them touching each other, without them going shoulder to shoulder, nudging each other, trying to get there. The bigger guy trying to use his physicality, the smaller guy trying to get his body in front of the bigger guy so in case he, he goes down, he gets a free kick. I just think it was it was one of them. It was 50-50. They were both pulling each other. Um, Egan's got a handful of Watkins. Watkins has got a, a, an arm across Egan trying to push him push him away and create some space so he can use his speed. And I don't really think it's it's um, it's clear and obvious. So I don't really... I know that if you see it as a foul, it pretty, pretty much has to be a red card because he's, um, he's last man. But... I mean, I did feel feel for Chris Wilder when he came out after the game and said, you know, um, look at why didn't we're being told that referees are going to uh, the monitor to to see things, and he didn't go to the monitor. Why did he? Why did he not go to the monitor when he's been? We're being told that referees are going to do that more. Like, how is that clear and obvious to a point where you're not <laughs> you're happy to take? somebody else's opinion on it and this is the whole problem with VAR you re-referee in games and you're refereeing it twice and it undermines the original referee it leaves clubs confused and and um, and angry that they can't um, look at one man and say well how have you come to that decision because it's just a a nerd in a in a room with a computer in front of him so it's it's, <laughs> it's just one of them it's, it's annoying isn't it we're, it we're all nerds annoying. in computer rooms at the minute we are yeah, the whole country is just a country of nerds at the minute but Stockley Park has the highest volume of nerds to a computer ratio at the minute doesn't it so it's just one of them I do feel sorry for Sheffield United though because you know they. I don't think it was a, a red card and um, if, it, if it was I think it has to be a bit clearer than, than what it was Jim, Marley is right in the sense of the big issue from a fan point of view is this idea of consistency. You look at the the Liverpool-Chelsea game at the weekend, Martin Atkinson's decision to send off Andres Christensen. The foul with Christensen and Mane was almost identical for me to Egan and Watkins of a little bit of a a, a bit of scrap and then obviously Christensen's been more physical than Egan was with, with Watkins. But in that instance... He originally gives him a yellow card. Then he waits. He has a break. He has a sandwich. He has a coffee. He goes over to VAR. He has a chat with the <clears throat> with the fourth official, and then he sends him off. Whereas last night, when you've got Sheffield United players, you've got Chris Wilder screaming at Graham Scott to at least go and look at the monitor. He doesn't. He wants to stick by his decision. Mm. It's a mess in this idea of consistency because even if there's somebody in his ear, one of Marley's nerds referees are still thinking well what's the point in me being here if I'm not allowed to referee the game it seems like there's just confusion around the protocol at the moment and I didn't see the Christensen incident you referred to at the weekend so I can't comment on that one but I thought last night it was an incredibly harsh red card and I think Egan when he hears the whistle goes he kind of turns around going it wasn't a foul it wasn't a foul then he gets sent off which is a real shock I mean uh, whether Ollie Watkins even had the ball under control uh, to it be classed as a goal-scoring opportunity is a completely different debate. But once he has given that red card, VAR can't overturn that because it's not, as you say, it's not a clear and obvious error. And it's about it being a clear and obvious error rather than a clear and obvious foul or a clear and obvious handball or whatever. It's that the referee has made the wrong decision. And although it is incredibly harsh by the letter of the law, it probably is the right decision. I actually think VAR's got better this season. I think the process of the referee going to the pitch side monitor and being able to then overturn his own decision seems to have led to fairer calls and quicker resolutions than it being referred to Stockley Park. And if that had happened last night, if the referee had gone to the monitor as Chris Wilder wanted him to and he'd made that decision he probably would have overturned it, but VAR couldn't have overturned it in that instance, I don't think, because it wasn't, it wasn't, on the face of it, it wasn't an error from the referee. It was a, it was poor judgment, if you like, <laughs> but it wasn't an out and out mistake. But I do think 
it's getting better VAR. I do think the FIFA protocols that have been bought in this season, because that's what's happened in the Premier League, the FIFA have said, look, we're going to handle this mess. It's same across the board. We have pitch side monitors. The referees can go to the monitors and check, re-look at their, the decisions they've made. It does seem to be having a positive impact on the way VAR is working. Last night, I don't know why that didn't happen, whether it's the referee forgetting what the protocol was or whether it was an error of judgment I don't know but last night it didn't work but in general I think it probably has been a slight improvement on where it has been previously uh, Marley obviously Chris Wilder will be annoyed with the decision even more annoyed with the results because it, it did look like they were kind of looking to bed in for the second half and try and hold on for a point which, which didn't come because Villa got what was a deserved winner I think in the end the big concern for me for Sheffield United moving forward is this lack of goals. We discussed this so many times last season that, yes, they're a good team, they play a nice way, we like Chris Wilder, everyone wants to go for a pint with him. But ultimately, the goals are an issue. Looking at the numbers from last season, you've got Ollie McBurney, Lise Moisey, John Fleck, all stuck on five, six Premier League goals. He's done well in the transfer market to bring in Aaron Ramsdale and address Dean Henderson going back to Manchester United. But they need a goal scorer and there's only you know two weeks or so until the transfer window shuts that has to be a priority for him now no yeah 100% um you can't really talk about Sheffield United without mentioning their their lack of goals i think we've talked about them a, a few times in the past few weeks and the situation's always been if they start conceding goals can they can they score themselves out of trouble kind of thing and the strikers they've got just don't look like they're gonna, you know, get ten goals a season, even 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 that amount. So, I think they do need um, do need something else. I think they've been linked with with Ryan Brewster from uh, from Liverpool. He might be great. Um, he scored a lot of he, a lot of goals in the Championship last season. Again, there's no guarantee over when it, whether he can do it in the in the top flight, but. You know, if if good strikers were easy to easy to sign and there was guarantees over them, everyone would have one. So, it's kind of it's one of them things where you've, you're always going to have to take a chance on someone. But at some point, you do have to take that chance because, you know, a 35 year old Billy Sharp is not going to score your 13, 14 goals in the Premier League. Lise Mousse has been he was good last season to be fair He's, he got a little run of, of goals where he scored I think every week for four or five weeks or something and it was like alright oh, come on then is this is this your solution to it and then he he went dry and he, it was almost like a purple patch and then he went back to normal he wasn't really a threat anymore McBurney's okay but he might get you you know seven or eight and it's just one of them things they need they need to take a chance on someone else they might need to shell out quite a bit of money but it's a chance worth taking because at the end of the day you know your defence can do it because they did it last season so it's practically the same minus you know a new goalkeeper coming in but you need to for me take that chance and, and give yourself a fighting chance of uh, of bagging a striker who can, can score you you know enough goals to to win your tight games and things like that, and and give you a, a fighting chance. Jim, do you think Chris Wilder's potentially a little bit scared to upset the apple cart? When you look at his team from last season, he rarely changed it. There was probably only really fourteen or fifteen players that he used regularly. Even when Sander Berg came in in the January transfer window, and obviously he really impressed in the Champions League against Liverpool and looked a real player. Wilder still just kind of looked to ease him into to first team action. If, as Marley says, they go out and spend thirty, forty million on a striker. Is there a danger that maybe the way that they play gets upset and possibly even the balance in the dressing room? No. No? <laughs> well, they've already, <laughs> they've already brought in like four or five new players, haven't they? And even though... But, but that, doesn't, not, that doesn't it, drastically change the way they play. Well, I don't think bringing in a new striker will necessarily... You, you bring in the striker to fit your system rather than a striker and then build a system around him. So I think Sheffield United are cute enough in the transfer market to bring in the right player if they are looking to invest in a goal scorer. And it is something that they desperately need. But I'll tell you what, I was thinking then when Marley was speaking, I'm going to ask this question to you, Fergal. I'm going to flip it round because you were the soothsayer of Sheffield United's <laughs> success last season. You called oh them God. for top 10. What <laughs> happens now? Because... I th it's been, it's certainly been a disappointing season for Sheffield United. The start of the season has been disappointing for them. And Chris Wilder has undoubtedly good credit, goodwill in the bank at the moment. But at what point, if it doesn't work, do the board say, OK, we need a change? 
how do we we, we need to we need to do something differently because whatever is different from last season is not being repeated this season and then once Chris Wilder leaves Sheffield United I mean suddenly it's all bets are off isn't it yeah, I mean, I think when you look at what he did last season and what the team did, ultimately they just got squeezed out of that European place. I think, I'm not ready to cash in my chips on Wilder and Sheffield United just yet. I built my entire season of predictions on that. Um, <laughs> but they do need a different way of playing. At the moment, they're very readable for teams because everyone saw last season what they did and might have got caught in the first time they played them. And then as the season wore on, we saw teams getting a little bit cuter in the way they played against them. He hasn't really reacted to that this summer. And a big part of that is this idea of a striker because teams now know that whether it's McGoldrick or McBurney or, or whoever or up top or Billy Sharp, they're not going to get stretched in behind that much. They're not going to be asked questions in areas of the pitch that they don't want to. So teams are going to push up and push up on them. The issue for me in order for them to even get close to where they were next, uh, this season and finish around the top 10 is they need a different way of playing. That includes bringing somebody in, if not two or three new faces, but having a different option. Now teams know that the ball gets put out to Baldock or Stevens and they'll look to get it into the box. You play with two tall mm. centre-backs, that nullifies that. You have a hard-working midfield, that shuts down Fleck and Lundstrom and, and uh, Norwood or, or, or Sanderberg if he comes in. So, as I say, I'm not giving up on Sheffield United. I, I, you know, I think they'll, they'll stay up. Um, and based on last season, obviously that would be an underachievement. But I think in the, the cold reality of where Sheffield United are as a Premier League side, I think it would probably be fair to be 10 to 15th. And I think that's where they will finish. But if they don't want to be sucked into a battle with your West Broms and your Fulhams, there needs to be a good few new faces coming in and definitely a striker. Definitely. 100%, 100% I would say. Um, fifth, fifth defeat in a row now. Fifth defeat in a row going back to last season. And I just wonder if that creeps up to seven, maybe eight defeats in a row. If they fail to get points on the board, I do wonder whether that will rattle the confidence. And the confidence was so important for Sheffield United. Last season, the way they went about games, they showed faith and belief in the system. They didn't think they they didn't fear anyone. And I just wonder, I do worry from slightly. I know it's only two games of the season, and I know we're a row, it's really early, <clears throat> but I do worry slightly about them. My concern for, for Chris Wilder is the worst thing Sheffield United could do if they sat Chris Wilder, which I don't think he's absolutely bulletproof. He's done a really, really good job for them and changed a lot of perceptions about the club and, and the way that they play football. The worst thing they could do, because they're exactly ripe for the model of getting in one of the old guard, somebody giving Allardyce a text, mm. someone giving Pardew a text, the so-called relegation. <laughs> no, but it's true. Like I, I honestly think that Chris Wilder has forced Sheffield United to get on board with Chris Wilder. In a Chris Wilder-free world at Sheffield United, I think they'd revert to type and go for one of the old yeah. guard. And then might keep them up this season, probably wouldn't want the next, and then they slip down. And, and then... Who knows? As you know, as we discussed at the top of the show, the the financial issues that are facing teams outside of the Premier League is very uncertain at the moment. You slip out of the Premier League in the next twelve or eighteen months, you could be facing a real problem. So I don't think Wilder is, is as I say, absolutely bulletproof. But if they do decide to go against him and, and go for a different way of looking at it, please, please do not hit speed dial on any of the old faces I don't want to see any of them back I don't want to see any of them back in the Premier League Marley back me up on this nobody wants to see Allardyce or Alan Pardew around their football club absolutely not I mean football <laughs> football's struggling enough we know fans imagine if, you know we've got got to tune in and see Alan Pardew doing dan dances on the touchline and all yeah. that crap Jesus Christ no no thank you no, I'd I, rather go and be a rugby fan I, I'm definitely not ready for that um, Sheffield United obviously we've talked about them losing two games but this was impressive from Villa to get a win on the board Jim obviously they had issues at the back end of last season and just survived by the skin of their teeth but for me obviously we talked about Watkins and the penalty incident with, with John Egan the bought in Bertrand Traore Watkins was impressive in the championship last season but is he Premier League quality? Is Traore? Do they have enough? Is this just going to be another give it to Jack and he'll dig us out season? I actually thought Watkins had a decent game last night. And although he didn't, it was difficult because he didn't get the opportunity or space to contribute much last night. But by the same token, that was kind of what he did well in that game because he gave another issue for Sheffield United 
to think about where normally they'd have Jack Grealish to focus on. They now had Ollie Watkins and Jack Grealish to focus on and it kind of gave Grealish a little bit more space to create. It wasn't the greatest game in the world. There wasn't a lot of chances, but you did kind of see how that partnership could work going forward. The signing for Villa that I think is really exciting, though, is Martinez in goal. And I know it's easy to get carried away when your keeper saves a penalty, particularly a penalty as well as he saved the penalty last night. But I think he's an excellent addition for Aston Villa, and I think he could be the difference for them. Been great at Arsenal for however long he's been there. He deserves a chance at being a number one. He's finally got it at Aston Villa, certainly for the time being. And if you look at his stats from last season, when he played the end of the run for Arsenal until Burn Leno came back, only Hugo Lloris had a better save percentage in the Premier League. So he is a quality goalkeeper. He's getting a chance at Aston Villa. And if he keeps up his form, I think he's the man who could be the difference for Aston Villa this season. And Marley, obviously we talk about goal scorers being the difference of keeping teams in, in the Premier League and that, that golden nugget of can they get double figures, can they save their team? But Jim is dead right. Someone like Emiliano Martinez can save you as many points as uh, a Danny Ings, for example, or someone like that at the top of the team. But in between Martinez and Grealish, yes, Tyro Mings is, has done well. He signed a new contract yesterday. There's one or two other players dotted through the team, but there still seems to be this idea of it didn't work last season. Dean Smith, what have you done over the summer to make sure that Villa fans are not in this situation in April, March time? Um, I think, to, to be fair, I think Villa have done everything they they can, really. I think if you look at, if you compare them to Sheffield United in terms of what they've done in, in the window, you know, I've just said that Sheffield United need to take a chance on on buying a striker um, that can maybe score you a lot of goals and and get you out of trouble. I think Villa have done that with with Watkins. Um, they've took that chance, um, spent a lot of money. It might backfire, it might not. But at least you've had a go. At least you've gone well. You know, we spent the money and it didn't work out. If they go down this season, they can they can say, well, we tried. Um, I think they've sorted out their issue uh, in goal with Martinez. I think Heaton was was excellent at uh, the start of last season before he got injured. But they struggled when they were playing Nyland and, and then Pepe Reina, who was a, an absolute car crash when he came back. He was practically nearly relegated Aston Villa um, with his form, um, <laughs> which I think you could have... You could have seen coming if you'd seen him play in the last couple of years. He's barely played a bloody game, Pepe Reina. So I was amazed they brought him back purely on the basis that he used to be good for Liverpool. But obviously now they've they've got they've got rid of him and they've got Martinez. And I think they've solved two big issues um, of of potential goals in Watkins and and um, and at the, at the other end they've got Martinez. Cash is Cash is decent as well. Is tends to be as I said yesterday a bit more of a finishing touch. You don't really sign a right back in terms of he's going to win us games or he's going to save us games kind of thing. So I think they've got that sorted. I still think there's weaknesses that in midfield, the centre midfield, they're not they're not amazing. But you know if you you sort that out sort of last, you you make sure you. You're, uh, you you can score goals and you need, don't concede as many as you can so by spending 50 million quid on, on two players in Watkins and Martinez I think they've done alright I think Mings is good um, on his days he's, he's as good as you can get down that bottom end of the table um, and alongside him God, I think that's a bit of a weakness as well but uh, you know you can't expect to go and fix everything in one window so I think they've done all they can Villa I think the, the business is the business is okay um, they've just got to hope it sort of uh, it carries on gelling and, and they can pick up some wins before it gets a bit tough for them. Uh, very quickly before we round up part two, just a prediction. Jim, who finishes the season higher, Sheffield United or Aston Villa? I think you've still got to say Sheffield United based on what they did last season, although everything I've said in the last 20 minutes <laughs> or so probably contradicts that massively. I mean, Villa are in a great position to do better than they did last season and Sheffield United will be un- unlikely to improve on what they did last season, but I think it'll be reasonably close. But um, yeah, I think Sheffield United just... Marley, the Villa or the Blades? Uh, Sheffield United, I think, just about. <laughs> um, I'm not... I've 
I don't say that with with much confidence because I don't, you know, my predictions are <laughs> shocking. Um, I mean, <laughs> just to just to sum up my 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 predictions, I put the last three pound in my account, my betting account last night on Sheffield United winning. They then went down to ten men and missed a penalty before going ahead. So that <laughs> it just sums up on the back of the Van City thing yesterday. It just sums up where I am. So if you know, if I say Sheffield United go lump on Aston Villa to finish tenth or something because. <laughs> <laughs> that, there's my prediction and it's bound to be wrong so there you go right, I'm going to make it three for three and go for my beloved blade Sam Allardyce's Sheffield United bring it on pushing for Europe <laughs> uh, we're going to call it there for part two after the break Jim is going to be continuing our floodlight focus series he's going to be speaking to Michael from the Everton podcast The Unholy Trinity we'll catch you in a minute Football's Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It's time for our Floodlight Focus, which we're looking at Everton with today. And I'm joined by Michael from the Unholy Trilogy podcast. Hello, Michael. Hello, how are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. I mean, for you, there couldn't be a better time to talk about Everton, could there? I mean, it could be an absolutely huge season. There's been a few false dawns in recent years, but it feels like this season everything is finally falling into place. Yeah, it it certainly appears that way. I think, um, obviously, the appointments of of Carlo Ancelotti um, in in December of last year was a a pivotal moment. Um, We were always keen to see what would happen in his first major window. Obviously, we had the January window, which wasn't really utilised by the club, but we thought, okay, let's see what happens in the summer and and who Carlo can Mm. can attract to the club. And the the, the four players he's brought in are very, very good. Um, Obviously, you've got your main main signings over there, James Rodriguez, Decore and Alan, but then also you've got a, a, a real good youngster left back uh, in in Enconcu from Marseille as well, and the the transfers that have come in so far uh, really really appealing to to all fans to be honest with you, and it's and it certainly is exciting for for this season to see what they can actually do. Do you think the intention of not spending anything in the winter window, and I think Everton fans kind of expected a little bit of cash to be spent there and that's got to be improved, but it now seems that what Ancelotti was doing, he was taking a step back, he was seeing what he had at his disposal before making those investments and it would appear that's been the right decision at the moment. He was most definitely taking a look at what he had. Um, you know, the, we started last season. I remember speaking to yourselves, sort of early part of last season, and there was still a lot of a lot of faith in in what uh, the manager at the time, Marco Silva. There was there was faith in certain signs that had been brought in, and we just thought, you know, it's going to click at some point. So Carlo wanted to have a look at what he had at his disposal. That that's for sure. And he was also saying to the side that was there, the players that were there, you know, you, you're auditioning now for your place in this side and in this squad because come the summer if I don't like what I've seen you'll be gone and you'll be replaced um, so the players have had sort of six months under Ancelotti he's brought in obviously his system his way of working as well and if players sort of you know can't fit the system and can't step up then you're going to be out of the side and you're going to be sold. I mean, you, you see it, the likes of, say, Theo Walcott, for example, who didn't get into the squad mm. against West Brom. And last season, pretty much, he, he was starting the majority of games, you know. So those kind of players who uh, historically would have been guaranteed a place in the squad are now. Uh, but they've had the chance to, to prove the way to them over the last six months. I guess you talk about auditions. One player that you could say is past the audition is Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who... I was slightly surprised to see him retaining his place in the team this season. I thought potentially you'd have Richarlison playing through the middle or looking at different options, but he's played both games so far. He's chipped in with goals as well. Does he deserve to get his chance now? Is he going to, is he going to be Carlo Ancelotti's Inzaghi? Um, I think I think that comparison, when he, when he made that comparison about Inzaghi, it was more, the, the point he was making was he wanted that um, Calvert-Lewin to, to be maybe a bit more instinctive and mm. not to think about finishing too much. I don't think, obviously, he was saying he was in the level of, of Inzaghi because he's not a natural finisher, Calvert-Lewin. But what, what I would say, you know, he, he's played every league game under, under Ancelotti. I think he scored 13 goals in 20 games 
under Ancelotti, which is a great record for, yeah. for any striker in the Premier League. I think he's improved massively uh, with the, the help of obviously Duncan Ferguson and Ancelotti. And I think the, the faith that the manager has shown in him is, you know, we, the, the kids coming to say and now knowing he's got that trust of the manager. He's got the number nine shirt, which he asked for. He asked for that number last season, uh, which is a, a big thing for our club, that, that particular shirt, when you see who's worn it uh, in the years gone by. But I think he's definitely going to be our, our striker for this season. I think in the system that we've got, he will play central. Richarlison, obviously Hammers can, can go either side as well. Richarlison, if needs be, can come into the middle, which we saw when uh, Calvert-Lewin went off against West Brom. But Calvert-Lewin more than deserves, you know, his start and base on that side. He deserves to be in, in the England squad as well. You know, he, he's the head of other strikers who were getting a look in. Um, but, you know, he, he's done really, really well and he's proved many doubters and many Everton fans wrong, in my opinion. Well, I was going to say, because there's a rumour going around in some of the papers today, a particular newspaper that we don't mention in general, but particularly up around your kind of area, we don't mention it, are saying that Manchester <laughs> United are after Calvert-Lewin. They want to give you 80 million quid in return. Rewind 18 months, you would have bitten Manchester United's hand off for that kind of offer, wouldn't you? Of course, yeah. I mean, the Calvert-Lewin links United was there um, last season as well. There was, there was a little man going around. Um as you say, we don't pay any attention to that particular publication in our part, <laughs> so it's all taken with a pinch of salt, and we don't really see see those rumours anyway that comes from there, to be honest. But yeah, there has been a link in the past. Um, £80 million pound for, for many players is, is, a, is a lot of money. I think, you know, like 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 any player for any side, you you have to pay what they're worth to that, to that particular side. So we were saying Calvert-Lewin, he scored 15 goals in all competitions last season. If you've got a 15-goal-a-season striker, for us, he's worth his weight in gold. Mm. So you know, it's a silly, it's a silly amount of money for, for many, many players. Of course, it is. Um, but basically, that if if that price is being quoted, it's being quoted to put off any potential suitors because Calvert Lewin is is a big part of, of Ancelotti's plans. Do you think that's kind of it in terms of recruitment now? Do you think Ancelotti's got a squad he's happy with, or are you going to see a couple more moves in the next two weeks, or does that kind of depend? I mean, you've got a massive squad at the moment. I guess you probably need to sell a few before you recruit. Mm. Yeah, I think we're going to see a couple come in. I think you're going to see a centre half. We've we've got a couple of injuries. You know, uh, Mason Holgate is, is out for around about say ten, twelve weeks uh, with his, his toe injury. You've got Jared Brantwaite. He's got about five five weeks out as well. Um, so there, there's two centre halves who were in the squad last season who we can't call upon. Leaves you with Amina and Michael Keane who are very very similar in terms of they haven't got you know a great deal of pace, great in the air, but they can't really play together. So we we need someone. Um, Samori has been linked quite heavily from Chelsea mm. on loan so possibly possibly him obviously it, it was it was well publicised that Gabriel had a medical with the club in January and he was all ready to sign but then Covid hit and, and that changed changed things Um going to talk about a right back potentially on loan um, there was talk of Arias was, was quite strong but he's apparently on the verge of signing for Bayer Leverkusen as of today um, Dallo from Man United another one potential right back to, to come in and push mm. push Seamus Coleman and there's also talk of a winger as well um, so I know Zaha links never ever go away whether it's <laughs> true or not um, but there's been a few other ones I think uh, Bailey as well the, the Jamaican lad he, he's also been linked there's a little bit of talk of Neres as well again um, so say we, we don't know there will be movements but like you say the squad is so bloated so that the likes mm. of you know Fabian Delfs, Theo Walcott, Yannick Balassi, Sandro Ramirez is still knocking around somewhere in the in the, the vaults of the in Finch Farm. There's there's a lot of these kind of players who need to be needs to be moved on and, and some for money. There'll be a few loans yeah. out, I'm sure, but there needs to be some money brought back in. You know, we we've spent if you, anywhere between forty five and fifty million pounds so far this window. So you you need to look to get players off the books and get these these inflated wages off the books you know um, so there's plenty of players there who are going to be surplus to requirements Tom Davis potentially another one who we could see move out maybe it's going to be on loan we don't know um, but there's plenty plenty of players there who we will look to get rid of but we will see more players coming I'm, I'm almost certain of that because he, he wants he wants a, a squad of players of quality so he doesn't just want a, a good 11 which we've got at the moment, he wants players to be pushed by players on the bench. So we are going to see more incomings, that's for sure. What do you think is realistic for this season then? Because it still feels somewhat of a transitional period for mm-hmm. Everton. 
they're not maybe going to reach their potential this season. So what would be a, a decent or a realistic finish for the club? I think the indications in terms of who he signed, you know, there was a lot of talk when Marcel Brands came in that, you know, the, the type of player that he brings in and the type of age bracket is more of your younger, maybe 22, 23 year olds to try and build a project around. It's quite clear Carlo Ancelotti has gone, I've, you know, I'm going to be here for say three, three and a half years or so. I want to make a success of this club. We need to get a particular type and particular quality of player in, hence why we signed, you know, a, a fantastic player in, in Hammers and Vegas and, mm. and some real quality with Alan and Decore. So on a free as well, amazingly. On a free, yeah, you know, apparently we, we paid off a percentage of his of his uh, remaining contract, which is, was the only cost to us. So, you know, I don't, I don't care what anyone says and it's going to be one of the deals of the, of the window, that's, that's for sure. If, if he's... If he stays fit, you know, and he, we can guarantee sort of 30, 35 games, then he's going to win us games because he's just he's just quality, world class. You see some of the things he, he did against West Brom, you know, some of the passing he made. You know, look, look, at, look at the pass for that Calvert-Lewin goal where he tips the ball to Richardson. We don't see, we haven't seen that at Goodison Park for many, many years. Um, and a little pass to Luca Dima, he looks one way and plays it the other way. The, the, the kid's quality and the kid will win us games. But I think the aim for this season has got to be top six there's no reason why we can't with the quality in that side I think it, it probably hinges on one thing and that's injuries to key players if we start to lose Richarlison maybe you know, for a handful of games Hamas um, Rodriguez Alan if we start to lose our midfield which was our Achilles heel last season and it was evident to everyone mm. who, who watched who watched our games if we lose that then you know, we we've got to we may not meet meet the potential for for this season, but I think most definitely top six is a name, and I think it's Sophie's very much a name. There's no reason why with that side we can't go and win a trophy this season. It's it's strong enough. Again, we just need to keep the the, the major players in that side fit, and um, most definitely, you know, we could have a really really strong season. I'm excited to see what Everton can do this season, so you must be absolutely buzzing, Michael. And if people want to follow the action via the Unholy Trinity podcast, where can they find more from you? Uh, Twitter is the main one, so at UHT Podcast is ourselves. Um, also available on Instagram and Facebook as well, and obviously you can find the, the podcast there on Spotify, SoundCloud and iTunes as well. Top man, Michael. Thanks for coming on Football Social Daily. No problem at all. Thanks a lot. That is it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss another show. There'll be a new Premier League podcast out tomorrow and we'll see you then. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.